You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. It is my pleasure right now. I'm going to invite Miss Samantha Mustin to come up here and join us. We've been talking about this for a little bit. Um, We are looking to see how we can help to walk together and partner with the International Rescue Committee. And we are blessed to have Samantha here with us today. You can come on up. And she's going to share a little bit right now about the kind of work she does uh, working with refugee families in Baltimore. Uh, International Rescue Committee, if you've never heard of them, very reputable group, doing tremendous things. Um, So we're going to have an info session after, but she's going to give a little teaser right now. Good morning, everyone. Like many refugee families, the Saliks, whose names have been changed, described their home in Afghanistan as having everything but security. Mr. Salik and his family were targeted for his position in IT at the U.S. Embassy. When they arrived at BWI, the IRC was there to greet them and transport their life's belongings into an apartment in East Baltimore. Next morning, their caseworker visited them to review locking the door and how to turn on an oven. For their first eight months, the caseworker enrolled the children into school, applied for food stamps, and scheduled medical appointments. Mr. Salik's employment specialist created a resume and started the job hunt. Their eight months were heavily supported to learn how to navigate U.S. systems. However, their social and emotional well-being was low on their list of their priorities. I paired the Salik family with family mentors. The mentors helped apply for a car donation through a nonprofit called Vehicle for Change. They went to the library to pick out books for their four children to help learn English. They and Ms. Salik went to Afghan markets and botanical gardens. When I first met them, Ms. Salik was painfully shy and almost hesitant to speak. She heard about anti-Muslim sentiments and was afraid to make grammatical mistakes. She told me that the IRC staff and family mentors, however, showed her that people wanted her here and wanted her happiness. Her son, Muhammad, would hide in his bedroom during visits, but he was uncomfortable that he didn't understand English. By the end of the mentorship, he ran up to me, shook my hand, and asked which Ninja Turtle I liked. (laughs) Having a support system made a world of a difference for the Salik family. The community helps welcome families. Thank you. Day after service, we're going to be meeting in this room and probably give a few minutes for people to um, fellowship and make their way out. We're going to have an info session. It's not going to be that long, but basically give you uh, ways that our church is looking to be involved to mentor refugee families. And we're looking to do this together. So it's not just throwing you out there individually, but even perhaps work together as groups. A lot of options. So Samantha will be here. She's going to present a little bit, but also give you a chance to connect with her. So this, I want to let you know, by coming is not like committing and we're getting your social number and you're, like, you're committed forever. Just find out. Find out. Maybe God is giving you an opportunity to be involved in some good work we're doing. We have a heart for justice and the globe. And one of the amazing things about living in 2018 Baltimore is the world is coming right here to our own city. Tremendous way to be involved. So thank you, Samantha. We, we appreciate that. Um, I'm going to share a little bit from the Word, and when we say Word, we mean the Bible. And if any of you, if this is a new thing, coming to church, man, you got a lot of courage and faith to step into a place where it might be a foreign uh, adventure. But 
as part of this thing that we call worship, we like to look at the Bible, and we like to see what we believe God is telling us in the Bible, and we do it in different ways, but um, one of my ways that I prefer is that we actually just take books of the Bible, and we preach through it, and we learn uh, what God is saying, and, and it might have been a couple thousand years ago, but we believe the truths are still relevant as we incorporate that into our life here. So we've been going through this series through the book of James. And this man, James, was one of the uh, followers of Christ in the early days, and he shared this letter. And as you, if you've been here to listen to any of these sermons, you realize it's, it's really practical. Some of you are like, man, I would not want to hang around a guy like James because this guy just gets like, straight to the point. And like, he, he almost seems very direct, but it's in love, obviously. And as we looked in last week at the end of chapter 3, we looked at this idea of jealousy. And selfish ambition. And I know that's a stretch because most of us don't struggle with things like jealousy and selfish ambition. That's for petty people. But for any of you like me, man, this is like real stuff. And, and this idea that wisdom, according to what the Bible says, wisdom is living in grace and peace that we give towards other people. That's wisdom. So what we're going to look at today um, in chapter 4, we're looking at today's scripture as almost like a part 2. Like the sequel. The redo. Um, the continuing thought of why, why we experience this dissension that some of us do. And again, he just gets very real and practical here. So we're going to stand and read the scripture together. If I could ask you to stand with me. And this is for my benefit. I, I, I'm sure it honors God too. But I just love hearing the word of God spoken out loud by you guys. So let's read this together from chapter 4, starting verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world... Now you made me lose my place here because I, where are we? Keep reading and I'll follow you. No? <laughs> Keep going. Amen. The word of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you would guide us in this time. Holy Spirit, um, 
in some sense, this whole idea of coming to your word feels ridiculous in, in 2018 America when we have so much at our fingertips and so much knowledge that we look to this ancient book to provide guidance and to point to you, but it's faith. So Holy Spirit, take these old words and make it real right now, right where we're sitting, right where we're living. And Lord, draw us closer to you. Thank you for your word. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I want to make clear right off the top, um, the principles that James is talking about here, they can be applied anywhere, but um, the context here, James is writing to the church. He's writing to the church, and he's addressing those who would say they are Christians. So I think it's helpful to understand that, because um, things have changed a lot in the church from 2,000 years ago to now, uh, but one thing hasn't changed, sadly, and it's that people have a hard time getting along. You would think, for people who say they love Jesus and they follow Jesus, that, man, we should be, like, holding hands all the time, kumbaya, singing songs, like, we can't stop hugging each other, and, like, we got a donut in fellowship, but we have to give it to someone else, and we, like, want to share. But, man, um, people in church, just because you're in church doesn't mean you, you get along and there's fighting. And maybe for some of you, that's even a reason why you're kind of skeptical about this whole Jesus thing, because you've seen uh, people who say they follow Christ who are, like, more contentious, more cantankerous, like all those angry kind of words. I remember when I was growing up, um, I was actually in college by this time, but a church that my parents were going to, um, Korean church, it got so bad there among the leadership and different factions in the church. I almost feel embarrassed sharing this. It, it became like... Um, like Anchorman, you know, the different, uh, pe- different broadcast people fight. It was like that. Like three different factions within this church. And none of them would leave. You know, sometimes, eventually, you got to fight in church. Some people will leave. No one would leave. So you had three groups meeting at the same time in different parts of this building. And they were claiming it was all theirs. So it was just horrible. Police had to start coming every Sunday to keep people separated. And to make sure people went into the areas they're supposed to. Just horrific. I mean, just horrific. And, and this is kind of a side thought, but I think it's an important thought. Um, one of the things that God gives us as we follow him is that we're called to represent him to the world. Especially a world that maybe doesn't believe in him. And man, when we're fighting like that, it, it's not even like giving a... It's like about the worst example we could give of who God is. When his people are at each other's throats. So I think it's critical that we address these things that James is talking about here. And I want to clarify as well, um, this is not saying that all conflict is necessarily bad in and of itself. Um, Sometimes the fights that we have, and maybe fight is even a strong word, sometimes it comes out of legitimate wrongs or maybe things that um, are done to us that we need to deal with. And for you to not address it, is like suppressing things that are in an unhealthy way. So I think in families, for instance, um, you know, as I do different counseling among families, whether children, parents, uh, couples, sometimes I've noticed the idea of how you do conflict is a real hard thing because you grew up or you establish your family rhythms is we don't fight. Because like raising our voice or addressing things, that's a sign of unhealth and everything gets suppressed. Um, that's not healthy. Conflict it can be healthy. So not all fights are evil. But the kind that James is talking about here, it's a little different than a normal, healthy kind of conflict. It's, it's talking about more a heart that's out of order. 
That's what's talking about here. He's talking about a heart, um, your soul that's out of order. So the conflict is not from outside. He's addressing a conflict that's stirred up from within. He's not talking about external sources, though that might be real, but he's talking more about what comes out of us internally. That's what verse 1 is saying, right? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And then he describes some examples there. So let's be honest. Things might be chaotic around you. You might be in some like really nutty situations, um, but what James is saying here, hey, hey, yo, ultimately, it, it's not just your insecure boss. I know none of us here got an insecure boss, right? Hopefully none of us working at the church are saying, you're, oh, yeah, insecure boss. Um, it, it's not your nutty mother-in-law. But there's something going on inside of you. That, that might all be there. I mean, we're not saying that that stuff doesn't exist, but ultimately he's saying, in this kind of conflict, there's something within you. And here's my hope. Some of you are already, oh, this is going to be one of those kind of sermons. Man, he's going to lay. I'm setting you up here. My hope is that this is liberating for you here. That, that's really my perspective as I was preparing. I'm hoping this is incredibly liberating here. Because from talking with some of you, from observing, I think for some of us here, this is what life looks like. You've got certain things that bother you in life, but you've made it a point and you've heard messages like life message, cultural message saying, okay, life is chaotic, but if I can get my life in order, if I can just find a right profession, or if I can just get that right job, or if I can meet that right person, if I can build the right family, if I can move into the right neighborhood, if I can eventually give myself to good causes, if I can get myself in order, if I can physically get fit, if I can start eating better, if I can start exercising more, if I can develop better habits, then eventually I'm going to achieve this peace. And what happens is, if you do all those things, and you do it even well, you're still left with this, like, gnawing sense, man, why do I still have conflict in my heart? Man, everything is set up for perfection. I'm, I'm living the life. I've got it. But man, I still get in fights. Man, our family, everything is set up perfectly. We are like the model family. But man, I, I, I still get in these fights. I still hate this person. I can't get it out of me. Something as dumb as Twitter just raises up these things within me. What's going on? It's frustrating when you've done everything you're supposed to and things are not lining up the way that they should. And and why I say this is liberating or what I hope it'll be liberating is this is one of the most critical steps of faith if we want to grow to be more like Christ, to take personal responsibility for one's own heart. I'm, I'm not saying that societal factors are not real. I'm not one of those guys saying, oh, we just need to all own our own. No, no. I think there's real systemic issues at play. But what I'm also saying, it's not all black and white. It all works together. We also each have to own our own stuff. We got to own our own heart. Rather than trying to justify why something is the way it is or why things are happening, to, to take personal responsibility and say, yeah, you know what? That's all happened. I've had jacked up people in my life. I've got horrible situations I'm trying to work here. That is very real. But in the end, my deeper problem is not just with all of that, but it's also me. It's also my own heart. It's, 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 it's me too. Because if you're like me, chief among sinners, right? If you're like me, 
it's easy and natural to, to have this mentality like, if only. I do that all the time. If only. If only my kids would act like this. If only our church were like this. If only I looked like this. If only that person would stop being a moron. If only that neighbor would stop being so rude. If only, if only, if only. Um, but, but what helps is to recognize that if only things do happen, they might even change on a surface level, but on a deeper level, things will not change because the source doesn't change. You can change all this external stuff, but ultimately the source. And when we talk about source here, we're talking about the deeper area of the heart. Our problem ultimately is not just jacked up situations, horrible people. That might be real. It might be contributing, but our problem starts with our own heart as well. And that's what James intends in verse 4 here when he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Adulterous is a strong word, isn't it? But, I mean, he's basically saying um, promise, breaker, promise breakers. You promise breakers. And, I mean, let's be real. How many of us have broken promises if we're just talking with people, but with God? God has said, do this. Probably none of, in here, none of us in here got a 100% record on that, right? God said, do this, and we've done something else. We are, maybe you don't want to use adulterers. That sounds strong. You're a promise breaker. And then he goes into friendship with the world then from this idea of being adulterous, a promise breaker. And, and I, I need to unpack this just for a second here because I think sometimes, again, for some of you who this is new to you, that's, I, I envy you sometimes because it's fresh slate. But if you've been in church a long time, sometimes you hear things like friend, be, being a friend of the world and you go to like a weird place. Like, yeah, you know, being a friend of the world is like listening to certain kind of music that does not glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in every explicit syllable of its, of its um, rhythms, or going to a, um, a movie that's, you know, that's, gosh darn it, you know, higher than rated G, and, and, not, and, and it's not made by a Christian company, or, or hanging out in certain places, you know, that's being a friend of the world. And those might be, but I think that's way too shallow. I think that's actually way too shallow um, because I think friends with the world, as, as we're understanding here, and being an enemy of God is much deeper level than, than kind of those shallow expressions. Um, here's how I would explain what being a friend of the world is. Ultimately, every single one of us, what, no matter what we believe, we, we, we would say God has created us with our original intent that we would find our deepest satisfaction, we would find our wholeness, we would find peace. We would find the reason that we live as a created being of God, as his child. And that's what would bring us our sense of wholeness, our sense of rhythm, our sense of satisfaction. But instead, we have chosen to look to other things other than God to do what only he could do for us. And I would say that's being a friend of the world. We've looked to other things to be God that are not God. And then we see God's response, starting in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And um, the jealousy of God, I don't know how many of you, like, I don't know if that's a strange concept for you that God can be jealous. Seems kind of petty. Um, 
It might be strange. Because when we think about something like jealousy, maybe for you, you think about how you are jealous. And you're like, man, God's got some like counseling he needs because that's really petty. Because when I'm jealous, like I'll use me as an example. Um, I think I'm getting a lot better with this, maybe self-confidence or, or be- better rootedness in my identity. But when I was first married to my wife, I would see these weird things that I would do. And like we would be somewhere and maybe we're listening to a sermon together because we're really holy, right? So we'd listen to so- sermons together. And it's a sermon by someone else. And like if she would say something like, man, that was really good. Even if I knew it was good, there would be something within me saying, so what are you saying about my sermons? <laughs> hmm. Oh, you, wow. I, I, I don't think there's been that much affirmation of the things I preached. So, so I, I don't measure up with that person? Hmm. And, and it's just, I mean, I, y'all know, right? That's like insecurity. <laughs> That's like a deep like, dislike maybe of who I am, and I got my own issues. And usually when we think about jealousy, it's like it's either rooted in fear or insecurity, it's not God. God is not fearful of you. God's not insecure. He knows who he is and he's good with it. Um, as one person put it, God is not jealous about you. God is jealous for you. There's a difference. God's not jealous about you. Looking at you like, oh, man, they like that thing better than they like me. And I made them. No, he's jealous for you. Because of his own namesake, for his own glory, as it describes here, because he's given you his very spirit to dwell in you. That's a tremendous honor. God doesn't just create us and say, okay, y'all go off and do your own thing, and you're my minions now, and we're all quacking like little minions. No, he says when we're in him, he's actually given us his spirit. He dwells within us. We are his representatives. We carry his very essence into this world So that's why adultery is such a poignant and accurate description here. Because we're just totally um, laying aside the privilege of being God's carriers of his presence, of being his representatives. Um, You know, we talk about adultery, and there's a lot of things tied up with that, obviously. And some of you who've had personal experience, you could probably tell um, stories but one common thing I've heard in counseling situations, talking with people who've had to go through the pain of things like adultery, it's, it's this one common idea that the person who was sinned against often says, man, I just feel with all this, I was told I was just not good enough. Man, I feel like ultimately it was just like this big slap to my face that said, you don't compare to this person or to this thing. And ultimately, I would say that describes um, our hard problem. And again, God's not insecure. But it's this idea that God has given us everything we need. He's made us. He's given us all. He's given us his very life. He's given us his very spirit. He's told us to thrive and find our identity in him. And yet, we continue to chase after other things. We continue to give ourselves. We continue to look to other things to provide us what only God can give And guys, here's my heart for you. If you are where I pray you can be here today, if you're at the place where I hope you can can be, if you're at a place where maybe you're recognizing that we have spent so much of our life seeking to control and manipulate our surroundings so that we can have peace in our soul, but maybe we're starting to recognize that my problem is not just all those things, but it's my own displaced heart, and, and that I've sought peace 
in ways other than with God? If, if you're there, and if you're f- feeling convicted that you're there, guys, that's where we start. That's a starting point. But that's not where we end. It's good to be there and convicted, but that's not where we end. Because I think, this is just my opinion, I think that's one of the problems I have sometimes with religious expressions, even among Christianity. And I think, I don't think most churches have a problem telling us how we fall short. I mean, heck, you can walk into any church in America on a Sunday, and you will find how you fall short. You'll find how miserable you are, how wretched you are, how you're like an ant on the ground, and God could just squish you out at any moment. And so you better get your act together. But we just feel guilty, right? You're just left feeling guilty. And you feel guilty for like half an hour. Go home, rinse and repeat. Do your whole thing again, life, and then come back the next week. And then feel guilty again. Oh, okay. Oh, miserable. And then go back. And it's just the cycle. I, I don't know about you, but there's no life there. There's no joy there. That's not something I want to be part of. Because God never just wants you to recognize how you fall short. It starts there. He doesn't want you to stay there, though, because that's where this amazing, I'm about to go nuts here, right? That's where this amazing, crazy verse is offered to you that we see here in verse 6. But he gives more grace. You guys aren't responding the way I thought you would. That's just astounding. I mean, I read this, and I'm like, I was like jaw to the floor kind of thing. Because that word but there is one of the most significant grammatical tools there. Because up to that point, it's saying, here's your lot. God, you know who God has made you to be. And look at what's warring within you. This is what you deserve. You're an enemy of God. You're an adulterer. But God gives more grace. The opposite of what we deserve. But he gives more grace. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace, if it's a new term for you to really boil it down simply, is God giving us what we don't deserve. Because up to here, we read what we deserve, but God gives grace. And some of us, we have a real small view of what God's grace means. And again, some of this might be religious upbringing. You think, I am wretched, I'm miserable. Oh, man, but God gives me grace so I can barely squeak in. Woo! Wow. I am messed up. But, oh, thank you for grace that gives me that little curve, that gives me that little bump, that kind of lets me in. And now I got my foot in, so I better work hard to get in there. Or that God is kind of like some of how some of us view authority figures, maybe some for us, our, our dads or parents, kind of looking at us, like knowing what we should have done and kind of shaking the head. But he's dead, so he's kind of got to be nice. All right, here's another 20. Do something better this time. Grace. And that's how we view God. Like, he's just kind of like disapproving, looking at you, and it's like, man, I expected more. <sighs> you had a lot of potential. Wow. I, I thought you would have done more with this life. But, you know, I'm a gracious God, so here, come on in. You, you got to recognize grace wins. And it's not just like a little kind of like you're in a marathon and sin and grace are running together and oh man by the end of the sun, oh yeah grace wins thank you lord no sin didn't even know that the the person that shot the gun to race it's a way back there and grace is lapped it many times over grace always wins you cannot out sin grace and we've said that repeatedly at our church some of you think you can out sin grace because you're like professional grade a sinner you're good right 
You're like Olympic caliber. And you walk in here week after week and you sing these songs and our praise team does amazing. Talk about God's love, his mercy, how he'll never let you go. And you sing it because that's what you're supposed to do. But you don't really believe it. You're like, that's for like those holy moly folks there. Oh man, I've had a week. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm thankful he gives me some grace, but it's not enough. Because, man, I'm, I'm a wretch. And I know I fooled everyone here because I, I look like this holy, bully Jesus, Bible thumper. But, man, the places of my heart and my mind, <laughs> sometimes it's wretched. You cannot out God's grace. He sees that. And what does he do? He gives more grace. It's amazing. Pastor friend of mine, he describes it as 200 proof grace. And if you have no clue what that means, don't research. It's okay. But for those of you who know, we're saying like ultra, maximum, mega, as high as you can go. It's like extreme grace that will hound you in a good way and say your sin will not overtake you. God got, God's got you. And he'll get you all the way till the end. It's that kind of grace. And that's why when we sing these songs like Amazing Grace, we should never sing it tepidly. Like Amazing Grace. We should be like overcome with this idea that we know who we are. We know what we deserve. But yet, God gives more grace. It's amazing. It's inconceivable, but it's our reality. So then, if, if we get that, how do we respond then to this like 200 proof kind of grace? Verse 7. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. I'm going to throw this right out here. In our culture, submit is like a curse word nowadays. The idea of submitting to anyone, it's like, oh, well, I'm a mama. I don't, I don't submit. Um, because maybe for some of us, and some of this is like life experience, submission has meant weakness. It's meant um, defeat. Maybe it's meant loss. Maybe it's meant leaving yourself open to someone take advantage of you abuse you, and that's all real. But you have to keep this in mind, and everything you read here, you have to look at it through this prism. God is for you, not against you. Because if he is bad, yeah, look out for a word like submit. But if you know that this is a God who will give you more grace, as expressed on this radical tool of violence called a cross where he gave his own life in Christ, what do you have to fear when he says submit? He's wanting your benefit. He's wanting to give you more of himself. And again, he's not saying be submitted. So it's not like some jujitsu guy like turning you out and you got no choice. But okay, God, I submit. Bah, bah, bah. He's giving us freedom. Say, you submit because you understand the grace I give you. Because it's the best thing I can give you. Submission, it's acknowledging that God can lead me better than I have led myself. And if you here, if you've never had a problem leading yourself, you're like, I've always made the best decisions. I am impeccable. Maybe this is not for you. But if you're like me, I've seen evidence of how I've led myself has not always turned out very well. And acknowledging, submitting is acknowledging, yeah, God, you can do this better than I can. Thank you for reminding me again, Lord. Thank you for grace. Please, you lead me, Lord. As it goes on, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So there's two prongs here. One, the commands we're going to, one is resist. So resist means move away from sin, whatever that looks like for you. A simple question to ask you, what is hindering me in my relationship with God? 
I would suggest resist means get away from that if you can. Don't even play with that. But the second prong, the Christian ethic is never just about avoiding the bad, but it's actively seeking the good. We need to understand that for too many Christians, um, it's, the Christian life is miserable because it's just about trying to avoid the bad stuff in life. But the Christian ethic is never just about avoiding the bad. It's about seeking the good. Draw near. It's a command of active obedience to respond to him. So how do we pursue him? How do we do this? A couple of things that are just like basic in our church community here at the village. One, I think it's living a life in the word. And you're like, oh, big surprise. The preacher says I should read my Bible. Yeah, yeah I'll probably say it every week. To be in the word. To be in the word of God. But you got to understand our philosophy on the Bible here. We don't just believe it's this ancient text and like Aristotle and other wise books and smart stuff. And like get like your fortune cookie little things there. And like, ooh, that's good. Someone better put that in a coffee mug. Lifeway could make tons of money on that. It's not just that. For us, the Bible is like wise, good information. But ultimately, we believe the more we're in it, that's God giving us more grace. God has given us his word so that we can know him more. For us, the Bible is never just about accumulating more information because most of us, our heads are like this. We know too much, but it's also about, always about giving us the word of God to point us to the one who makes that word real. And that's why we're in the word. And that's why we have things like our Bible reading plan and we talk about the scriptures because we believe that points us to Jesus. And we also believe another way to pursue God is in community. Uh, I mean, you know, and that's just, that's old hat at this point, really, community, community. I, I want to, for some of you, especially if you're, if you're part of this church and you come regularly, even on Sundays and stuff, which is great, but you're not connected beyond that, I want to give you the encouragement and welcome you. You got to find some people that you walk with regularly. Because if it's just about hearing a sermon, I, I think that's almost unhealthy to just get more information that's not being filtered out and lived out with real people and for people to really know you. And one of the ways we are created as relational beings, one of the ways that God allows us to know him is through one another. And this is just a side. This is for free. Um, I love being part of a multicultural church because what that means is God is way, way, way too big to know through just one ethnic group. Amen? The glory and the majesty and the bigness. I know that's a big word there, right? Bigness of God. There's no way we can know the full... Ma- I mean, we have all we need in Christ. I'm, I'm not a heretic here. But to live out the full expression of that, I think it's, it's fully enhanced when we have other voices. We have wise men, wise women. We have people recognize, uh, representing different ethnic groups, representing different places from the globe, representing different socioeconomic backgrounds. And we get to see glimpses of God that we would miss on our own. So we need one another. We need one another. He goes on here. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, two prongs here. There's a dual response. What we do, one, there's a component of hands. And I love how Jason mentioned that earlier. It, it says, cleanse your hands. This is simply saying, hey, if you've got sin that God is bringing on your life, confess it. If there's visible sin, some of these things are showing you've got contention. You're fighting. You've got these kind of ugly quarrels. Confess it. Cleanse your hands. But the second prong, it says the heart. Purify your hearts. It's saying this is not just about your visible desires. This is, we're not in the business of just better behavior modification. This is not just about us being more holy moly, better acting people, where the, the source is not being dealt with. Because it's hands and heart. 
It's not just the visible things, but it's also our own desires. And again, recognize that the problem is not just external, but it's internal. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I'm going to stop right here and acknowledge this verse would not be read in most churches in America right now. Because it sounds counterintuitive to what we think we're supposed to be doing in churches. In most churches, the message will be, you know what? Life got you down. Come to church and start dancing and feel better about yourself. You just need a positive attitude change. Turn that frown upside down, mister. He actually seems to be instructing, yo, y'all laughing a little too much. You need to mourn. You're joking about your sin. Dear, these things are being revealed in your life, and you're just kind of laughing about it. And, and we're just not good in the West about uh, issues of mourning. We think that something's wrong with that. I think we miss out on a whole lot of what God is trying to teach us if we just gloss over this aspect of sometimes getting on our face, seeing our sin, and letting it grieve us a little bit. Again, I want to be very clear. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. You don't need to ask God to keep cleansing you, keep making you his child. Like if we do altar calls, we don't do that. But if we did, you don't got to come up every week just to make sure it sticks. Once saved, you are God's beloved and no one can take you away from that. But I think there's something about being in relationship where you acknowledge, I want that relationship to be all that it is. Um, I love my wife. I love my, my kids. They get sick of hearing this now, right? I, I, I love my wife. And I want to be really careful and mindful because sometimes I think when you hear people, especially publicly, say how much they like something or love something, you're like, oh, they really don't. That's why they're kind of compensate right now. So I, 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 have, I, I know that you're, you, some of you might be there. Oh, I really do, though. Um, but it's, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been a long process and a journey. And one of the things I realize about growing in love with my wife more and more is that the more I get united with her, the more I'm in a deep union with her, the more I realize how much I love her and how much she loves me, there's a part of me that just wants to do what I can to avoid the things that could possibly separate us. I mean, that's not brain, like, rocket science there. But if I've got this, like, deep, sweet union with my wife, and I know there are some things that I do that could possibly, maybe not from her, but from me, separate me from her, if I know that there's, like, um, selfishness in me that's being revealed, or maybe impure thoughts, or maybe, like, um, I'm petty, self-centered. If I recognize those things for the benefit of knowing that there's this sweet relationship, and I don't want to cause walls there, I'm going to bring those things up, and I'm going to try to kill those as much as I can with the biggest hammer I can find because I want to be in the best union I can be in with my wife, with my beloved. In the same way, if you are in union with Christ, you don't need to do anything for him to love you more. we got to get that straight. We're not heretics here. God cannot love you more, but your reception of that love, I do think, can be affected. And some of you have experienced that, right? When your heart's not fully there, you can hear every Sunday, sing all the songs, Jesus loves me, and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Because maybe we're not in a place and there's sin or there's other issues that are preventing us from fully receiving all that we have in Christ. 
So maybe for some of us, it's appropriate today as, you're, as, as God is revealing areas of sin, disobedience, hard-heartedness, things that are causing contention between your relationship with God. Not, don't just gloss over it. Don't just theologize and say, oh, I'm already forgiven for that. Grieve over it. Mourn over it. Get on your face about it. Let it hurt you. Not to kill your self-esteem, but what do we see here? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The Christian life is never about just making yourself feel bad because that's more holy looking. It's actually about being exalted, but in the right way. Don't exalt yourself, but humble yourself so Christ will exalt you. And know the fullness of him. Verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I want to be, I, want, I think it's helpful for us to This is not saying, yo, we're all good, so we shouldn't judge one another. I, I don't think that's what it's saying here. Actually, James just laid out in here all the reasons that we're not good, that they're not good. I mean, he made it pretty clear here. But what James, I think, is saying is that in the midst of all you are and all you've done, if you have received grace from God, it should determine now how you respond to others then. If, if you've just read what I've written here, and if you know that you've got this contentious heart, you've got this heart separate, but God, in the midst of that, what has he done? But he gives more grace. And if you've received that, it, it, it's got to mark then how we respond to others even people who really don't deserve it. That's, that's, that's the Christian grace. Um, I don't know what it is about me. My wife might have some different ideas, but there's something about me that just draws people who don't like me sometimes. I hope it's not you guys. I, I, yeah, your face is all so friendly, unless you're like lying and like you hate me behind that mask. But man, I got some people who really don't like me for different reasons. Um, you know, some of it's from afar, you know, things like even announcing things like we're, we're looking to help refugee families. I get some, like, angry people who contact me from outside the church saying, like, I'm a heretic. I'm like a Marxist. I'm like, what? You know, when I talk about, like, um, loving people of all skin colors and ethnicities and that, that does, that's important, I get people, like, saying I hate America. I hate white people. I'm like, what? And, like, angry stuff. And, and sometimes very personal stuff. I, I, I've had people um, just accuse me of some of the vilest things, you know, saying that I'm getting rich off our church, you know, and, and like, I'm, like that we're a cult, and some of you have been around in the days when we were called a cult, and like personal attacks. I, I've had someone who was spreading, spreading information that I was cheating on my wife. Like just, and, and I got to be honest here. People have asked me sometimes, Yo, man, I used to know you, and you would knock them out in the past. What happened, man? That's amazing. And I guess I guess I all that. You know, me and Jesus are like this, so, you know. <laughs> the reality, here's the reality. Some of y'all here, I love you. You're like, you, you show me an expression of Christ in your generosity, your kindness. I got no beef with you. I love you. But I got to be real. You don't drive me to Christ. I mean, you might show me examples of who Jesus is. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Praise God. I want to be like them. You don't like drive. You know who drives me to Christ? 
those people who draw out the worst things in me. The people that I want to like knock out. Like street fighter style, right? Like I want to, those are the people that draw me to Christ more. Those are the people who draw out things in my heart and that I'm flat on my face because I said, God, oh, thank you for reminding me. I'm not as loving as I thought I was. Who I thought I was loving. I'm a pastor of a church, right? I talk about love all the time. Oh yeah, I forgive. Oh Lord, thank you for reminding me. I don't forgive everyone. Oh, Lord, thank you for reminding me. Oh, I'm not as gracious as you are. Actually, Lord, oh, you're showing me I I actually hate some people. Lord, thank you for inviting me into grace again. Thank you for reminding me you gave me grace when I didn't deserve it. And that's what draws me closer and closer to Christ, the people who I don't want to give grace to, the people I don't want to love. Let's be real. The people I want pain to happen in their life. I feel embarrassed saying that as a... Maybe we should edit that out of the, but that, I mean, that's just my heart. There are some people that bring out the ugliest in me, and I think that's what this is saying here. They might do what they do. You got to own your own heart. And when you own your heart, you come humble before the Lord. What does he do? He gives more grace. Amen? My ability to give grace is proportional to how I understand the grace of God given to me. My ability to give grace is proportional to my understanding of how God has given grace to me. So just practically, if you have a difficult time giving grace, maybe it's God inviting you in to ask you, do you really understand the grace given to you? And wanting to pastor you through that. And wanting to love you. And give you more grace. So here's why I think this is important for our church. Um, I, I think sometimes in church we have this weird concept that we're always going to get along. And, you know, kumbaya should be on our praise list every week. And, you know, we always hug and holy hugs. And not too close, but, you know, side hugs. And, um, but the reality is if we are doing life the way we're supposed to, we will have conflict. If you are newer to this church and maybe you like this church, and you're thinking, I like it because people don't fight here, yo, you're going to be in for a sad awakening if you get to know people enough, because there are going to be some people, it's hard to imagine right now, there are going to be some people, maybe even the pastor, where you're like, oh, I can't stand them. Wow, the way they pray is annoying. Oh, the way they laugh. I know I shouldn't be judgmental. Oh, it makes me want to, like, put my head through a wall. So it's not that we're not going to have conflict, but guys, if we own these things that James is talking about, we each own our own hearts in the conflicts, that's growth as a community. Because you can't always control. It doesn't mean that you don't give direction and wisdom and, and share, but ultimately your job is not to lead. You're not the Holy Spirit. You can't change someone. The only thing you can own is bringing your heart to the Lord and saying, God, help me have more grace. God, help me have more grace. Because how we respond to conflict in our community I'm going to suggest it's not only the evidence of God's grace, but it's also where he will continue to give us more grace. So what I'm saying is when we have conflict and and we see God moving, that's not just going to be where we see him giving grace, but it's also going to be us, the place where he's going to give us more grace. What I'm simply saying is when we have conflict, which is inevitable, let's handle it in a way that James instructs us through the word. Let's own our hearts. Let's bring it to the Lord. Let's receive more grace from him. And in that, we give more grace to one another. Let's stand together.
And my hope for you, again, my hope is this is liberating. Because some of you, you, you're a good person. You're moral. I know we don't hear that often in church. I'm a good person. You're good people, a lot of you. But you're still struggling with why do I still have this heart? So I hope this is liberating to invite you to the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's what we do when we come to the table. If you're a Christian, during the time when we sing and pray, come to this table. Be reminded of the Jesus who gave his body, shed his blood, so we could be made right with him, even when we were not doing what we're supposed to. When we were an adulterer, when we were promise breakers, what does he do? Give us more grace. If you're a Christian, he's inviting you to come, receive the communion, be reminded of his amazing grace in your life. If you're not a Christian, Man, I want, this, I want you to know this story. I want this to be your story because it's freedom. It's freedom and it's joy. And this can be your story to say, you know what? Man, I, I don't necessarily feel puffed up today, but I feel like I got more of a realistic assessment of my struggles. Praise whoever. There seems to be a solution. And his name's Jesus. So I invite you to that today. Let me pray for us. Lord, pray for the men and women in this room. I thank you so much for them because they show me, Lord, what it means to love one another, even when everything's not perfect and ideal. But in spite of that, because we're growing to be people who receive grace because we're in desperate need of it, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you don't withhold grace. You pour out 200 proof, Lord, upon sinful people like us, and then you lift us up. You exalt us, Lord, and you make us your own. So we thank you for that. Draw us to yourself here. I pray, Lord, for some in this room, help us to take a step to resist the enemy today. We've been casually just living with our sin. Help us to fight because you've given us spirit to fight. For some of us, Lord, help us to be drawn to you in the word, in prayer, whatever we need. And Lord, we bring you our hearts and ask you to transform us so that our community might be transformed and we might represent you to a world that doesn't see us as perfect, actually far from it but as people who are being repaired and restored in you. So we thank you, Lord. Guide us in this time. So I invite you, sing, pray, receive the communion. You can come up both aisles, come up at the same time, and let's be drawn to the Lord this day.